Welcome to Breaking Through. I'm Madeline Bell, President and CEO of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Today's episode is part of a special series, Pioneered at CHOP. Many of the doctors and scientists at CHOP are considered pioneers in their fields. Their discoveries and insights are transforming children's lives and changing the world. In Pioneered at CHOP, you'll get a glimpse inside their world and hear the stories behind their groundbreaking work. On this episode, you'll hear from Dr. Scott Adzik. Dr. Adzik is CHOP's surgeon-in-chief. He is also founder and director of our Center for Fetal Diagnosis and Treatment. Dr. Adzik created the center in 1995 to treat babies with birth defects before they are born. He and his team have performed more than 2,000 fetal surgeries to repair birth defects while babies are still in the womb. Dr. Adzik is a pioneer in the field of fetal surgery. He invented surgical techniques that are now used around the world, and he has trained dozens of fetal surgeons. We recorded this episode in CHOP's fetal operating room in early 2020 before the pandemic. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you do too. Dr. Adzik, thank you so much for joining me today. As I said earlier, we are in CHOP's fetal operating room. Can you bring the listeners into the room and describe what you and I are seeing right now? Well, we're in the uh, world's first dedicated fetal operating room. As a matter of fact, outside this room, there's a sign that says fetal OR, and everyone who visits wants to get a photograph taken next to the sign saying fetal OR. This is where we do the work that we do before birth, operating before birth. And I think it's since 1995, close to 2,000 fetal surgery operations. This is a larger than normal operating room, and it's embedded within the Garbos Family Special Delivery Unit. The Special Delivery Unit opened in 2008. Here we are on the fetal OR. Next door is a neonatal stabilization room, and next to that is a cesarean section room because we do some operations which involve the mother having a cesarean section the baby being stabilized in the stabilization room and then immediately having an operation on a newborn in the fetal OR. So I like just to call sometimes a special delivery unit on the phone and just to hear the word special delivery unit or Garbo's family special delivery unit because it's I just get a charge out of that. Well, I had a, a real charge when I had the opportunity to be in witnessing you doing a fetal surgery. And one of the things that really struck me was the number of people in the room. Why do you have so many people in the room? Can you talk a little bit about their roles? Well, when you do an operation on the fetus, obviously you're doing an operation on the mother as well. So there are two patients, hence a bigger team. There's the mother who's sort of a medical innocent bystander who is undergoing some risk to help her unborn baby. And you have the fetus who has everything to gain from the operation. So in the operating room, um, we have usually two anesthesiologists, four fetal surgeons who are pediatric surgeons, one or two maternal fetal medicine specialists, two scrub nurses, two circulating nurses. We have an additional nurse who runs the level one warming device that infuses fluid into the uterus to keep the fetus warm and buoyant. So it is a quite large team. We're, we're very experienced. Uh, we always have a team meeting the day before to talk to the family to get consent, but also to do sort of an, a mind experiment to what the steps are, what the unique attributes for the patients are. In addition, here in the operating room, as we have in all of CHOP's operating rooms, we have a CHOP surgical safety checklist. So we have a huddle before the case, which is the role of the team uh, meeting. And then immediately before the operation starts, we have a timeout and we go through the entire checklist so everybody's on the same page. 
the experience is so great that really in the operation you watched, maybe it was a little bit like a symphony, and I hope, and that there wasn't a lot of oral communication. Everybody knew what they had to do, and it usually works pretty seamlessly. The operation you saw was a fetal surgery to repair spina bifida before birth. We've done about 400 of those. We did the first one and had the biggest experience in the world. And it's amazing, but from the time of the maternal skin wound until the maternal skin wound is closed and all the steps in between takes an average of 72 minutes. So it's quite fast. So you mentioned that the fetus has everything to gain or the baby does. And if we have pregnant women out there listening to us, why would they need to have fetal surgery? Can you talk to us a little bit about birth defects? How do you detect them? How do you decide this is the best place for them? Well, there are a whole bunch of prenatal diagnostic screening tests. You can't do therapy before birth without diagnosis. That includes routine tests such as amniocentesis or chorionic villus sampling. What's new in prenatal diagnosis now is called an NIPT. That's a non-invasive prenatal testing. You can draw a maternal blood sample at 10 weeks, and there's fetal DNA and fetal cells that leak across the placenta into the maternal bloodstream. And the scientists can ferret out those things and determine the baby's sex and also various genetic abnormalities. In addition, we have world-class maternal fetal ultrasound here led by Dr. Beverly Coleman, who's the director of fetal imaging. We invented fetal MRI here at CHOP in the late 1990s because when I came here, I challenged the radiologist. I said, we have to have a way to do MRI in the fetus. And everybody else in the world said, you can't do this. Fetus moves. You know, if you had an MRI before, you're supposed to sit still. But they came up with fast sequences that made diagnosis by MRI possible. And that's been very important particularly for the spina bifida problem, to look at the brain and the spinal cord. Birth defects are incredibly common. One in 28 babies worldwide is born with a birth defect, either minor or major. The causes of birth defects are unknown. The medical care requires in the U.S. alone billions of dollars. Research, in my, my view, is underfunded, and so we're pushing ahead with that. And then lastly, Birth defects are the leading cause of infant mortality. A lot of people aren't aware of that. One of the things that I was thinking about when I was watching you do the fetal surgery is, you know, what must it be like to open up a mother's womb and bring the baby out and do surgery? There are very few people in the world that have this experience that you have. What does it actually feel like for you? Well, before I answer that, which is a tough one, because I'm not an emotions on a sleeve kind of guy, <laughs> as I turn red. The premise in the 1980s, and the work was done in San Francisco, was that there were certain life-threatening birth defects that if you waited until the baby was born, you were too late. They were usually simple anatomic defects, and they were very devastating as a pediatric surgeon to take care of a baby whose lungs were too small due to a diaphragmaticernia or a variety of other sorts of things. So then we did animal work in fetal sheep and uh, fetal monkeys. That shows the importance of research to lay the groundwork. And then we applied that clinically. And we had to invent a whole bunch of different things. I helped to invent a uterine stapling device that can quickly and bloodlessly open the uterus and fire absorbable staples that are eventually absorbed. And fetal surgery wouldn't be possible without that. With regard to feeling, I mean, in the big view, we've had, I think, 25,000 referrals to our center since 1995 in the last 25 years. Only really 10% of them require any sort of fetal therapy. So that's important. Not everyone who comes here needs an operation before birth. Most don't. And one of the wonderful things about the special delivery unit is that we can provide that care all in one place for the mother and the baby, regardless of what the treatment options are. So what does it feel like? Well, 
There's no immediate gratification or not much in the initial operation. It is a little bit like a sport, a little bit like an athlete because you're working with a team. There's time pressure. There's manual performance. There needs to be team communication. And so it's sort of like a peak performance in a way in terms of focus and the team working together. The feelings come much later when the babies are born or when the children grow up. That can be very emotional. And we've had the opportunity to see so many of those families come back for your fetal family reunion. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the number of people that came to the last reunion and and some of the family stories. Well, this is a day of celebration. We have the mummers there and we have the Philly fanatic there and fire engines and rides. It's a day of celebration. So the first year we had this, I think it was 1997, there were more uh, healthcare professionals there than there were patients. And I have a photograph showing, well, first of all, me with brown hair, which is quite a change now with, uh, I guess, gray or silver hair. And then it's grown over the years. And this past year, I think we had, and this includes family members, siblings, uh, 2,800 people. And that's usually mostly just patients. It's easy to come back, regional, local, some of the national patients come back. And we've had sort of offshoot reunions uh, in Florida and Clearwater at the Philly Spring Training Camp. We've had one in Cleveland at the Botanical Garden. We've had one in Chicago at the zoo. We've had one down in Washington, D.C. in the museum. And uh, we plan to have one in uh, New York. That's very rewarding for you and your team. Well, I say, you know, and everybody mimics me now making fun of me, but it's true. It's my favorite day of the year. And as the numbers grow, uh, the emotions grow. By the end of the day, I'm like a wreck because it's just overwhelming. It's just overwhelming. Earlier, you mentioned funding and you mentioned the name of the unit. And so I was wondering if you could share with me how philanthropy has really fueled this work here at CHOP. Well, first of all, there's the science that makes these breakthroughs possible. So I've I've been lucky. I've had National Institute of Health funding for, uh, I think, three decades now. But you need philanthropy. It's a huge difference maker to do things that the NIH won't necessarily fund or too premature to fund. We've had uh, growth in terms of attracting talented faculty with endowed chairs that require philanthropy. The Garbos family uh, that I mentioned, Lynn and Bill Garbos, they're just wonderful. And they turned a personal experience, personal tragedy into a much, much greater good by helping us fund the Garbos family special delivery unit. And I am very, very grateful to them. Huge difference maker. I doubt that this unit, this fetal OR we're sitting in would be the same if it wasn't for the Garbos family. And you and I have had the opportunity to interact with Bill and Lynn Garbos and to see the gratification and the rewards that it's had for them and their family. The pride they have in the work that you're doing is very remarkable and also very gratifying. So I ask all of my guests to tell me about the biggest breakthrough moment in their career. Could you share with me that time where you really had an aha breakthrough moment? Well, uh, here at CHOP, it was probably our first successful fetal surgery operation uh, back in 1995-1996. For HIPAA reasons, although I have the family's permission, I won't mention the name, but the, the youngster's Roberto, he came from Florida inside his mom. He was in trouble before birth because the lung lesion was so big, it was crushing his heart and causing heart failure. So we did our first operation here at CHOP at 23 weeks gestation. He was very sick with heart failure. His heart stopped during the operation. 
I had to resuscitate him, give blood transfusion and directly into the aorta because I was inside the chest. But at the end of it, he weathered it well, as did his mother, Felicia, and he delivered prematurely, as some fetal surgery patients do, at about 34 weeks, but didn't require any respiratory support. And when I give talks, I'll show him, because his father, I think, wanted him to be a baseball player. So you see him at six months, and he's got this humongous glove, and it looks like a softball in front of him that almost dwarfs him in size. And then you see him at five years of age playing t-ball, running around the bases. And then you see him at our reunion in Clearwater, Florida, throwing out the first pitch at age 17. And then he's uh, on a baseball scholarship at the University of Texas campus. He wants to be a professional baseball player. I mean, how cool is that? It's so cool that I have chills and I hope all of the listeners do as well. That's a great breakthrough, a great story, and so wonderful that you've had the opportunity to follow him over the years. Dr. Ezek, is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners today? I think persistence almost to the point of obstinance is important. As you know, some folks call me Dr. Relentless. I actually do. <laughs> we were talking <laughs> and, and, about that I, before you came into the operating room. And, and I ho- hope that's in a good way. But you think about this special delivery unit. You think about the Center for Fetal Diagnosis and Treatment. What a miracle it is. You think about in 1995, coming here, having the opportunity to be surgeon in chief and to build something special, to have the idea of having eventually a special delivery unit when the volume of patients warranted it. There was a lot of skepticism. This can't be done. So I decided to go to business school. I went to Carnegie Mellon, sort of part-time. I got a master's in medical management, which served two purposes. One, it helped me administratively to qualify for my job as surgeon-in-chief every day. And two, I wanted to do a business plan for the special delivery unit. And so step-by-step, and finally the shop board embraced that, and you were part of that. And this year, there'll be about 550 very, very high-risk babies who need all the care that shop can provide in one place and the family can stay with the baby. And it's just a wonderful thing. And just to show that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, now there are special delivery units cropping up in children's hospitals, not only in the United States, but around the world. So it must've been a good idea. I think it was a terrific (laughs) idea. So what's the next idea? What's the next frontier in fetal diagnostics and surgery? Well, as far as therapy goes, I think it's going to be cellular and gene therapy and one more thing. So I'll talk briefly about three things. One is in utero hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. So what is that? Well, there are certain cellular deficiency diseases such as sickle cell anemia that might be amenable to treatment with adult stem cells from the mother transfused to the fetus that they engraft because the fetus has an immature immune system and won't reject them. And so Dr. Alan Flake has been working on this for three decades, and we hope that clinical applications around the corner. Secondly, Dr. Bill Peranto, a young pediatric surgical scientist, trained here, finished about eight years ago, and he's very well NIH funded now for in utero gene editing. Unbelievably, using CRISPR technology, it may be well possible in the future to correct single gene disorders before birth, which has many, many advantages. Imagine if you could treat successfully cystic fibrosis before birth, mind-boggling. And he's had high-level publications in science and nature medicine. So that's rewarding. The third thing, which is around the corner, which you're very familiar with, Madeline, is uh, the artificial womb. That's a way we hope in the future to support babies who are born too soon, 23, 24 weeks gestation, 
cannulate their umbilical cord, put them in a bio bag with amniotic fluid, and the baby's heart will sustain the circuit that oxygenates the blood and can provide nutrition as well through this circuit. So that's something that's not yet ready for clinical prime time, but I think that's around the, the corner. And if you could just provide those babies, 23, 24 weeks, for five more weeks, a life-saving bridge, then that can make all the difference between life and death and all the difference between no complications and many complications. Well, I believe I speak for all the listeners to say, I'm really looking forward to the next stage of this journey with you. That's all the time we have for today. Dr. Adzik, thank you so much for joining me. To find out how you can be part of tomorrow's breakthroughs at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, please visit chop.edu giving. To learn more about how our teams are transforming the future of healthcare, please visit innovation.chop.edu. At CHOP, we make breakthroughs every day. I'm Madeline Bell. Thank you for listening. <laughs>